You can follow along in the screen above or in your Bibles. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, which they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Mercy here in Hackensack. Um, Sorry, lighting is a little bit dim down here. Um, So we're about two weeks out from uh, Christmas, if you can believe that. I mean, every year just seems to be going by so fast. Uh, And what that means uh, is that uh, we're actually right smack in the middle of Advent, which is uh, part of the the Christian calendar. Uh, For those of you who might not be familiar with Advent, Advent is a season that leads up to Christmas. Uh, And what Christians do is they use this time, uh, which is just a, a few weeks long, uh, they use this time to think about and to pray about or, or to prepare for the uh, the birth of, of Jesus Christ. Now, every year during the season, uh, one of the things that we do at New Mercy is we go through a, a sermon series where we explore some of the themes of Advent. This year, we're calling this series Awaiting the Promise, okay, Awaiting the Promise. And the gist of the series is basically this. See, back before uh, Jesus was born, there were a number of folks who were waiting for the, the coming of the Messiah. Um, what you see when you look at their stories and how those people waited, right, especially those you know, who were considered faithful in God's eyes, their waiting had certain qualities and, and characteristics, okay? What we're doing in the series is we're looking at what characterized faithful waiting in their lives as they waited for the Messiah, and then we're taking those principles and applying them to our lives today. And I'm not sure if uh, you realize this, but we also are in a holding pattern as Christians today. Just like the other people back then uh, were waiting for the coming of the Messiah for the first time, what we're doing today is we're waiting for the second coming of Christ, Christians today. And as Christians, as we wait for Christ's return, we're not supposed to be doing nothing. No, Jesus and the rest of the New Testament are crystal clear that our waiting should have certain distinguishing qualities about it. And that's what we're looking at in this series, okay? We're, we're looking at these people in the biblical Christmas stories to learn what faithful Christian waiting should look like. Now, some of you guys who, you know, I mean, every once in a while you see people in the news or Christians in the news and they, they believe the second coming of Christ is imminent. And so as they're waiting for that second coming, what, are they, what do they do? They like stockpile food into the basement, right? Or, or they invest in gold, right? Because the value won't like fluctuate as much. That doesn't, whenever I see that, I'm like, that doesn't seem like 
the behavior that God wants us to have as we're waiting for Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what that behavior should actually look like uh, in our lives as we're waiting for him. Now, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Hudson kicked off the series with a sermon where he explored the general idea of, of waiting itself. It was actually a very uh, insightful talk. He looked at how waiting involves things like longing uh, and, and becoming, uh, and also uh, things like story and opportunity, and he looked at those various dynamics of waiting. It was actually a very insightful sermon. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I really recommend listening to the podcast. Then last week, Pastor Lisa took the baton and uh, looked at the story of Mary uh, and gave a very powerful sermon about how faithful waiting involves surrender. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Joseph's side of the story, and as we do that, hopefully we'll learn a couple more things about what characterizes faithful waiting as a child of God. So one of the difficulties with the, uh, the Christmas accounts uh, that we find in the Bible is that because we're so familiar with those stories, we often take for granted uh, some of the details in those stories. But here's the thing. When you slow down your reading and you pay attention to the details in these stories, what you find is that there's actually a lot of stuff going on. And most of it is actually very significant. And if you spend time thinking about these details, what you discover is that there are some very profound truths hidden within these stories that we can all learn from. And I just want to draw your attention to two of those uh, details today. The first detail that I want to draw your attention to is this. Some of you actually probably already know this, but one of the things that you learn when you read the birth narratives in the Bible is that Mary is not actually a descendant of King David. She's not part of the Davidic lineage. The reason why that's important, an important detail is because that's actually a major problem. Okay? The scriptures say that the Messiah will be a descendant of David. Now, if you look at the narratives, what you learn is that Joseph, Mary's husband, uh, he's actually a bona fide descendant of David. Okay? But the problem is, he's clearly not the Messiah himself. And, as we learn in today's account, nor is he the biological father of the Messiah. The reason why I'm drawing your attention to this is because God, right, when David was alive, when King David was alive, God made a promise to him. God promised David that a descendant from his line, the Messiah, would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And if you're familiar with how God portrays himself in the Bible, you know that one of the cornerstone characteristics of God is that he is a God who keeps his promises. Without that, We lose much of what makes God, God, his trustworthiness, right? We lose that. This detail in Joseph's story is important because God's promise, God's word, God's faithfulness is at stake. So what has to happen? Well, what has to happen is that Joseph has to adopt Jesus into the line of David. That's the only way that Jesus can become a legitimate descendant in that lineage. And that's why the angel tells Joseph... To take Mary as his wife instead of divorcing her. And by the way, just a a minor detail. Uh, It says in the text that Mary was betrothed to Jesus or or, uh, committed to marrying, uh, not Jesus, uh, to Joseph, right? Uh, Back in that time when you were betrothed, you were essentially married. And so that's why, you know, I'm talking about divorce and stuff like that. If she were to commit adultery or sleep with somebody before, you know, the official, I guess, marriage ceremony, uh, they were still, it would still be considered adultery and it would still be considered divorce if Joseph, you know, uh, leaves her, abandons her. So anyway, this is why uh, the angel tells Joseph to take marriage as his wife, right? And that's also why he tells Joseph to name Jesus, right? Now, to us, when, you know, when we hear that Joseph... 
was told to name Jesus, it doesn't really seem like a big deal, right? We, we think he's just telling Joseph to give the baby a certain name. But what many of us don't understand because we don't live in that culture is that the angel is not just telling Joseph to give the baby a name. No, by telling Joseph to name the baby, the angel is telling Joseph to formally adopt the baby as his own. Joseph is to claim Jesus, to bring Jesus into the line of David. Commentators say this is how the angel's command to name the baby would have been understood at the time. New Testament scholar uh, Eugene Boring, if we can throw the first slide up there, he says this. By naming the child, he effectively adopts Jesus into the David line. Matthew uh, and the Bible generally invest great power in declarations and naming. By being named by Joseph, Jesus becomes part of the Davidic line. Now, what am I trying to get at here? I mean, all this minutia about naming. What are you, why is this important? What I'm trying to get at is this. If you think about this situation, right, what eventually dawns on you is this. The fulfillment of the very promise of God... Jesus being part of the, the line of David. The fulfillment of that promise is contingent on the obedience of Joseph. You see that? If Joseph decides not to listen to the angel, if he decides that this whole idea of the Holy Spirit impregnating his wife, if he doesn't want anything to do with that, and he divorces Mary and doesn't name Jesus, what happens is that God's promise fails. God's word does not get fulfilled. Look, look. God could easily have bypassed that problem. I know. I'm sure he could have found another way. He's God. But for some reason, he decides to give Joseph a real choice here. God tells him what to do, but it's still up to Joseph to do it. And as many of you know, if you've read the Bible, there are many people in the Bible, when God tells them to do something, they decide not to obey. Right? So he has a choice. He, 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 gives, them, he gives these people, and he gives Joseph a real choice here. And in this instance... In Joseph's life, the choice could mean the fulfillment of God's promise through him or not. Now, why does God do it this way? Why does he give Joseph that kind of responsibility, that kind of power? Right? Well, I think St. Augustine says it best. He writes this. Next slide. He says, without God, we cannot, which is obvious, right? As human beings, we're finite. Without God, we cannot. Without us... He will not, is how he finishes that. See that? Without God, we cannot. Without us, he will not. See, the reason why God incorporates Joseph's choices into his plan, the reason why God gives Joseph a choice here, is because God actually wants Joseph to be actively and willingly involved in the fulfillment of the promises of God. He's giving Joseph an opportunity here to partner with God in God's work. This is just the way that our God operates. God will not do his work without us, without our active participation. Our active participation is an integral part of his plan. He wants to include us in on his work. He wants us to be his partners. Joseph, in today's text, he's given an opportunity to partner with God or to reject that partnership. And you know what? We see this characteristic of God, you know, this desire to partner with us from the very beginning. You know, uh, when God creates Adam and Eve, after God does that, what, what else does he do? After God creates Adam and Eve, what does he do? Well, what he does, if you read the account in Genesis, what he does is he commissions Adam and Eve to be stewards over creation. He tells them to take creation in all of its untapped and unrealized potential and to bring order to it and to channel it 
so that it would flourish, so that it could sustain human civilization, and so that it would become something even greater. God had a purpose for, for the raw creation around us. And instead of just doing it himself, he makes us partners with him in the finishing and the fulfillment of that purpose of what creation is supposed to become. You know, and we see this, and we see God working like this, always partnering with us, right? Always including us, always integrating our choices. We see him working like this from the very beginning all the way to the very end. You know, if you look in the book of Revelation, which is the very last book of the Bible, and fittingly, it, you know, it's a book about the end, the end of time, about the second coming of Christ. If you read that book in chapter 8, you'll find this passage. If you can throw the next slide. It says this. Another angel, and this is uh, the Apostle John, he's having a vision, right? And then this is how the vision unfolds, or part of it. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of God's people and the golden alt- uh, on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of, his, of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumbling, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. It's all symbolic imagery, of course. Okay? But it's symbolic imagery that's pointing to a concrete, concrete reality. And that reality is that our prayers actually move God to bring about the unfolding of history. In this passage, our prayers rise up to God's throne. And the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake, what they represent is that these prayers were effective in moving God to act decisively in history. That's what this imagery is talking about, this scene. You know, it's not like, you know, this. You know, incense and the prayers rise in God's throne and God doesn't just, uh, you know, whiff in like, oh, and just kind of sit there. No, the, the imagery is that it was so pleasing to him that it moves him to act in history to bring about the unfolding of history, to affect the course of history. Okay, basically this text shows us that God partners with us through our prayers. God chooses to use our prayers to affect the course of human history. From the beginning to the end, when you read the Bible, you see so clearly that God wants us as his willing and active co-laborers. Now, all of this stuff about how our choices, right, our free will, and God's sovereignty and God's will being accomplished, how all of that interacts, right, it's, it's, a very, it's actually a very tight theological rope, and we have to struggle with, you know, walking that line carefully. But one thing we cannot deny is that the Bible and all of its writers and God and Jesus, all of them are unanimous in their witness that we have a role as his partners, and God takes that role very seriously. Our choices as his partners matter, and they have a concrete effect on human history and in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Through the things that we do, right, as, as individuals, as people, right, through the things that we do, are we choosing to be in partnership with God for the accomplishment of his purposes and will? Or have we rejected his partnership to do what we think is best? Brothers and sisters, look at your life. There are innumerable times, innumerable times that God has called you alongside himself to partner with him. There are innumerable times when you look at your life. You know, the, the time that you felt God saying, 
maybe you should sacrifice some of your personal time and serve the people in the church. What did you choose? Right? When he said, be my partner and serve the people in the church, what did you choose? Did you take that as an opportunity to partner with God? Or did you say, I'm too busy? And if you did decide to partner with God by serving the church, when it got hard for you, because serving gets hard, right? did you persevere and continue to labor alongside God, or did you quit? You know, uh, it got really hard for Joseph when he decided to follow God's will with regard to Jesus, right? Joseph had to take his family and flee to a foreign land to protect Jesus as a baby, which was not easy back then. Right? His reputation was tarnished because Mary got pregnant before they consummated their wedding. And I don't think most people were going to buy the explanation that Joseph had, which was that the Holy Spirit did it. His dreams also, Joseph's dreams about what his future and family would look like were irrevocably changed. But despite the sacrifice and the ongoing long-term difficulty, he chose partnership with God over his personal plans. Or how about the time you felt God saying, maybe you should spend less money? Maybe you shouldn't buy such an expensive car. Maybe you shouldn't buy so much on Amazon. And maybe you should, instead of buying all that stuff for yourself, maybe you should use that money to sponsor a child, or two, or three, or four. Or support the church and its mission. Or buy a friend who's depressed an encouraging gift. Those times you felt God leading you in that way, what did you do? Did you, did you partner with his guidance? Or did you say, nah, this money's mine. God, your stuff comes later. Or the time that you felt God saying that maybe you should pray for someone who's sick. Have you ever, I don't know, you say to people, hey, I'll pray for you, somebody who's sick. Do you actually pray? Not just once, but multiple times. The time that you felt God saying, pray for this person, they're sick. Or, or pray for them because they're hurting or lonely. Or the time that you felt this tug in your heart that maybe you should talk to that person who's sitting, them, sitting there by themselves during fellowship. Okay? Or the time that you knew someone was going through a rough time and you felt that God saying, you know, maybe you should check in on them and buy them a meal and spend an evening with them. Or, or the times you felt God saying, maybe you should invest in other people in your life and in the church or in your neighborhood or, or uh, invest in a global justice cause. Those times, did you partner with God or were, you, were your time, comfort, and plans more important? Look, I'm not here to try to make you feel guilty. What I'm trying to show you is that your choices have significance, Each time God whispers to you his desires, whether it be through reading the Bible through the word or through prayer, through the community or through your conscience, each time God whispers to you his desire to partner with you, you have an opportunity to partner with God to bring about more of his kingdom here on earth. If you choose to, blessings can flow through you. When you choose to serve your neighbor, to be generous, to invest in people. God's kingdom will come to those people through you. But here's the thing, and this is something you need to pay attention to. When you choose not to partner with God, what you do is you deprive people around you from experiencing what God had planned through you. 
You know, there are some people in your life that only you can touch, right? And if you don't partner with God, they will not experience that touch from you. You know, some people in your life that, you know, you have a special relationship with them that you can only touch in, one, in a particular way. You're the only person that can touch that person in that way. And if you refuse to partner with God, you're depriving that person from the touch of God through your touch. And that's significant. You know, some people who could have been less lonely because of your, your friendship will continue to be lonely. Because you didn't answer that call. You didn't partner with God. Some people who could have had food because of your generosity will go hungry. Some people who could have been blessed by your words will miss out on an encouragement they desperately needed. Your choices have significance. They have consequences. Joseph had a choice. And and if he chose to disobey the angel of God, Christmas would have looked very different. Brothers and sisters, your choices to partner with God or not to partner with Him will affect the course of history in your life and the lives of those around you. You know, when I look back at my life, um, a lot of people who have influenced me, uh, but there are two people. Every time I think back in my life, there are two people who really stick out, besides my family, of course, but two people outside my family who really stick out. And, and these two, two people, I'll just name them. Uh, the one, one person, his uh, name was Pastor Jin. Uh, he was my youth pastor. And then there's another guy, Pastor Kevin, who was my college pastor. Um, uh, pastor you know, again, Pastor Jin, both of them pretty much knew me since, uh, since I was a youth. Uh, and we're still you know, in touch even to this day. These are two people, when I look back, I can see that their partnership with God had a profound effect on my life. I mean, these guys invested years of their life in me. They showed me. They took the time to explain to me and show me sides of God that previously I had not known. They helped me discover different gifts that God had given me, and they, and they eventually helped me to discern my call. And even if you look at the more mundane things they did in my life, I mean, it was, it just, it was incredible what they did when I think back. Right? They would always buy me dinner and lunch, despite the fact that they were on a Korean church pastor's salary, right, which is basically poverty. And I would be like, hey, Jin, you want to buy me lunch? He'd be like, okay. All the time. I never paid, not once, all through high school, college, even as a young adult. They took me on trips. One, one of them took me to Panama City, Florida. Another one took me to Hawaii. Uh, Pastor Jin also, he spent uh, hours helping me write my college admissions essay. Hours, because it was so terrible. I mean, he read it, and he's like, this is terrible. And then he spent hours, literally hours that night. Even he was like falling asleep, but he was still editing it with me, and he had a sermon to write. He's like, no, you're just so bad. And, just, and he helps me. And they always, and this is one thing I really appreciated about them. They always answered my desperate phone calls. Right? They spent hours talking with me and counseling uh, me when, when, when I had a crisis of faith. I would call them like, yeah, I don't understand this. I'm having a crisis. And they would spend hours with me. Or, you know, if I had a crisis with a girl, which was pretty often in, in, in college, I'd call them up like, I don't know what to do. And they'd be like, you're an idiot, stop. You know, and, and they'd talk with me for hours on this. Over and over, they took time out of their lives and to give it to me. And you know what? They always had a choice. Okay? But they always, cho- they always chose to partner with God in his impact in my life. And because of their choices to obey God, 
to serve a struggling younger brother, the course of my history changed permanently. I probably would not be here if it weren't for those two people. You don't know how many times they've helped me avert disaster because of my stupidity. Okay? Their choices had a significance that I felt concretely play out in my life. Your choices have that very same significance. Your choices to partner with God or not to partner with Him, what you do has profound significance, often far more profound than you even realize. So brothers and sisters, as we wait for the second coming of Christ, as we are in this holding pattern, in the overlap of the ages, are we, like Joseph, choosing to partner with God during this time? Are we? If you're a Christian, it should, this should be a characteristic of your waiting. Okay, the second and final detail I want to draw your attention to from today's text, uh, I already alluded to briefly. Let me uh, actually quote New Testament scholar Craig Keener because I think he says it best. He says, Because Joseph alone received this revelation, outsiders in the story would still think that he had gotten Mary pregnant before the wedding. Either that or, you know, she got pregnant through adultery and he still decides to marry her, which is still pretty shameful in that time. He would remain an object of shame in a society dominated by the value of honor. Joseph's obedience to God cost him the right to value his own reputation. Look, no matter how you slice it for Mary, she was going to get slammed for getting pregnant outside of marriage, her marriage with Joseph. Okay? It, clearly, you know, it, it's just, it, she was just in a bad place. But Joseph, like we said, he had a choice. He, you know, he could technically have decided, you know what, I'm out. I'm going to find another girl and preserve whatever dignity I have left. But he didn't do that, right? Instead, he chose to obey God and embrace Mary regardless of the shame that would bring on him. He chose to make Mary's shame his burden. He chose to make her shame his burden. We as Christians are called to do the same. Brothers and sisters, taking on the burden of the marginalized, of the sinful, of the poor and oppressed, that is one of the most profound things that God calls us to do while we wait for his second coming. Are we doing that? Is this a characteristic of our waiting? As we wait, just like Joseph, who deliberately decided to carry the burden of Mary's shame, have we taken on the burden of the people around us, or is the only burden that we're carrying the burden of the American dream for ourselves? That mortgage, is that the only burden in your life as a Christian? You know, one of the dangers of the Christmas season is that um, being generous and, and sacrificing for others you know, taking on the burden of those suffering around us, all of that looks a little bit more glamorous, actually, during the Christmas season, right? We, we buy gifts for those who can't afford them, right? You know, we, we, go, we serve at soup kitchens, right? You hear stories of someone going out of the way to do something nice for a homeless person. You see somebody standing outside of Walmart, you know, with Salvation Army ringing and bell. You go, okay, here is the season to give, and you, you give it to them, right? We do all of that. And we see all of that. And it gives us these warm feelings inside, right? We get caught up in the spirit of the season. But see, for Christians, this is never supposed to be a seasonal thing. 
In fact, this is something we are called to do every day of our lives in spite of how we feel. You know, all throughout the Bible, uh, it tells believers, right, that we are to serve the poor, right, to, to heal the sick, to, to carry each other's burdens, to defend the cause of the oppressed, to love our enemies, to forgive and embrace those who sin against us. You know, when you read that in the Bible, right, it sounds so wonderful. It sounds so beautiful. Yes, defend the cause of the oppressed. You know, we really, yes, yeah. And, and, you know, we listen to sermons about this topic and we feel inspired and we agree vigorously. Yes, that is what my faith is about. Can I tell you something? That feeling is not going to last. I mean, have you ever really tried to serve the poor, to defend the oppressed, to carry people's burdens on a regular, continual basis? To carry people's burdens, their financial burden, their relational burden, their health burden, their emotional burdens. Not just for a moment, but as a lifestyle. Have you ever really tried to do that? If you've ever really tried to do this, inevitably you know that you, will, you get to a point where, you, where doing this feels like crap. Where carrying someone's burden feels burdensome. And you know what happens so often? I, I mean, I see this all the time. Christians get to this point where they're like, man, you know, this is hard. And they no longer feel inspired. And because it's hard and because they no longer feel inspired, they're like, I don't want to do this anymore. And this is why you see so many Christians doing things in spurts. It feels good for a season. But then it feels hard. And so they think that something is wrong because it's hard. This isn't what it should feel like. And so they stop. Have you ever stopped to think that maybe carrying someone's burden is supposed to be hard? That it's supposed to feel burdensome? You know, this whole thing with Mary that Joseph went through, that was not easy for Joseph. Okay, yes, look, it wasn't easy for Mary. It was probably harder for Mary. Okay? And we acknowledged that last week. You know? But what we also have to acknowledge is it wasn't easy for Joseph either. First of all, I mean, let's think about Joseph's story. You know, oftentimes we read Joseph's story and we're like, oh, he just did that. It just seems fine, right? Have you ever thought about the details of his story? Right? The emotional roller coaster that he went through. I mean, think about it. He was so excited to mar- you know, marry Mary. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to marry this girl. This is great. And then he finds out she's pregnant. Right? And f- obviously, he's like, well, I didn't do it. Right? And so it, he doesn't have this, uh, you know, she didn't tell him about the Holy Spirit yet. So it, immediately, what's he thinking? He's thinking adultery. You know, yeah, I probably need counseling for thinking like this. But every once in a while, you know, I, I kind of do this. I'm, I daydream. And I think, you know, what would happen if, you know, my wife committed adultery? I mean, I know she's here, so I'm going to try to talk like she's not here. Um, <laughs> what happened if, you know, she committed adultery? And you know what the first word comes to mind? Murder. Okay? Double homicide. That's what comes to mind. Right? And think about that. You know, you see, you know, you, th- you think Joseph came to Mary and was like, oh, you're pregnant. I'm just going to divorce you. Have a good life. You think that's how it went? No, he's freaking out. He's pissed off. Okay? And not only that, right? So he's like, okay, he's like, Okay, I'm going to control myself. I'm not going to kill him. I'm not going to, whoever freaking this guy was, I'm not going to kill him, right? And then he's like, okay, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to be a gentleman. I'm going to divorce her quietly. But even getting to that point, if you know anybody who's been through the process of divorce, anybody who gets to that point where they decide to divorce somebody, right? You know, how, 
contained that in that, if you read in the text, it says that he had made his mind up to divorce Mary. And you read that and you're like, okay, well, he, I guess he just decided. No, in that sentence is contained a world of suffering and pain and hurt. Right? He went through that. And then, you know, I'm sure, like, after uh, Joseph, after Mary told Joseph, like, hey, it was actually the Holy Spirit. You know, not only is, did she commit adultery, but she's a freaking crazy person. Right? That's probably what he was thinking. The Holy Spirit, right? And then after that, he has a dream. And then you feel like you would figure, oh, after this dream, he would be relieved. But in the dream, he finds out that the child that he's about to have and that he's called to adopt is the Son of God, is the Messiah. Not much more comforting. Right? And then after that, right, Joseph's reputation, even though, you know, all this stuff they know, okay, it was the Holy Spirit and stuff, other people don't, don't know that, like I said. And so people, his, his reputation is going to be destroyed in other people's eyes because of Mary's shame. Okay? That wasn't some one-time thing. Okay? He carried that around with him. It affected his relationships for the long term, if not permanently. And you know what else? If you read on in the, uh, in the uh, narratives, the Christmas narratives, Joseph had to uproot his family and flee a number of times because of Jesus, because people were out to kill him. And that was not an easy thing to do during that time, especially if you didn't have that much money. What I'm trying to point out to you when you look at Joseph's life is this. Difficulty... When we follow God's plan, difficulty when we take on other people's burdens, that's not an aberration. That's exactly what the practice of faith in a broken world looks like. It looks hard, thankless, burdensome, costly, laborious. You know, this Christmas season, uh, it really, I'm, I'm being genuine about this, right? It's, it's really awesome to see you guys purchasing gifts for the youth at YCS, right? You know, it's very, you know, that's genuinely an awesome and a very generous thing that you guys are doing. But as I always tell people who go on missions, which is another good thing that people do, but I always tell them something, you know, going on short-term missions is easy. Quote-unquote, loving those you don't know, that's actually not that hard. Where the real test of your faith comes in is when you have to do those things for the long term. When you have to do those things for those around you every single day of your life. Look, anybody can do occasional acts of generosity and sacrifice. The question is, are you living a lifestyle of generosity and sacrifice? Oftentimes you hear like, you hear these inspiring stories of Christians doing these amazing things and you think, man, that's what it means to be a Christian. I got to go on a crusade. That's what you think, right? You have to do these great things for God. But Oswald Chambers says something different. Next slide. He says this. It is inbred in us that we have to do exceptional things for God. But we have not. We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things. To be holy in the mean streets among mean people. And this is not learned in five minutes. Do you live this way with those around you, including your family? I mean, isn't it interesting? We're, you know, we can be so polite and nice to a stranger or to a friend, but when it comes to your family, all of a sudden, right, to the person you see every day, the person who knows your weaknesses and, and all your foibles, right? Foibles, where did that come from? Uh, and, you know, and the person, you know all their problems, Right? Are you daily loving and carrying that person's burden? Okay, and also people in the church who've hurt you, 
who are socially awkward or who are needy. I know you guys avoid socially awkward people. I know you do. I see it. Right? But are you recognizing that that's not what you're supposed to do? Okay? Or, you know, maybe you're part of an imperfect church. Numerous is an imperfect church. You know, we make mistakes and we stumble along. Are you, are you simply a critic? Or are you helping carry that burden together as a community? You know, as Joseph, as Joseph joined Mary in carrying her burden with her, the shame of her burden and the burden of Jesus, are we doing the same for those around us? You know, uh, when Jesus came to this planet, uh, he was in it for the long haul. I hope you guys realize that. He knew when he came, right, that people would, re- would reject him, would spit on him, would torture him, and eventually crucify him. They would nail him to a cross. And he also knew that after the resurrection, those, of, those people who call themselves Christians, who call themselves his followers, he knew that those people, most of them, including myself, would take advantage of his grace and continue to sin and continue to hurt him in innumerable ways. But despite knowing that, he still came. You guys realize that? If I knew that you were going to do that to me, I mean, yo, freaking screw you, man. I ain't coming. But he still comes. And he promises that he will never leave us and never forsake us. You know, in the Christmas account that we just read today, it says that one of Jesus' names is what? Emmanuel. Which means what? It means God with us. Brothers and sisters, Christmas isn't just a one-time visit by Jesus. Jesus wasn't like, my name is Emmanuel, God with us, and then I'm going to go home. Right? No, that wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave you. Right? He, he gives us the Holy Spirit. Like, he's with us forever. That's, that's, that's what it's about. Christmas was God permanently moving into our lives and carrying the burden of our sin so that he could be with us for eternity. When it says God with us, it means God with us for eternity. He was in it for the long haul. To the degree that you understand that Christ has done that for you, to that degree will you see yourself carrying the burden of others. To the degree that you understand that Jesus has carried your burden and continues to carry your burden, and a burden that you will never have to carry, which is the the punishment for your sins, to the degree that you understand that, to that degree will you see yourself carrying the burdens of others. To that degree will you see yourself partnering with God through our choices so that all may know the God who is with us. Okay, let's pray. If we can bow our heads, if we can have the praise team come up. Um, Some of us need to repent. And again, I, I say this all the time, but repenting isn't groveling in your sin and feeling bad. Repentance is simply acknowledging, you know what, this is not the way I should have been doing it. God, help me to do it the other way. That's all repentance is. And I think some of you guys need to repent. I think some of you guys need to recognize that you have not been partnering with God. That, in fact, the only partnership you have is with yourself and with those around you for your American dream, for your own comfort. And then occasionally, maybe just so you won't feel guilty, you've given out a little handout here and there. If that's what you think partnership with God is, you totally do not understand the gospel. So if that's been you, I think you need to repent. And I think you need to ask God, hey, God, help me to understand what it means to partner with you, okay? I think others of you, you know, um, carrying each other's burdens or carrying the burdens of people around you, again, we do that in spurts here and there, but, you know, we get, when it gets hard, we kind of just 
getting grown. I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, and I think maybe we should ask God to help us to be a burden carrier as he was ours. Okay, so why don't we take a couple moments, just pray that to God and ask him to work in that way in our lives. And however else you feel like the Holy Spirit was telling you to, uh, or was convicting you, let's just take a couple minutes to pray to God. You know, again, I don't know how often you have time to pray to God, but he's listening. Even if it's just now, you don't need to feel guilty that you didn't pray all week. Just come now and say, God, I'm here. Just talk to him and he'll listen. Okay, let's pray.